Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. When was the last time you had a social mishap in a conversation? Do you remember how it feels to say the wrong thing at the wrong time? Hi guys, this is Dr. Z. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you are a shy person or are struggling with social anxiety or social perfectionism, it's quite likely that you are holding on to the beliefs that you must sound smart, interesting, or funny. That there should never be an awkward silence in a conversation. That you shouldn't stumble over words. That you should never mispronounce a word. One way to manage those thoughts and the anxiety that comes with them is by avoiding social situations rehearsing over and over what you're going to say and how you're going to say it, or only talking to people you feel comfortable with, or comparing your social performance with others' social performance. When you are unable to meet this perfectionistic social standard, then you may feel that you have failed. But the truth is that none of us can live up to this perfectionistic social standard or have the perfect social performance. When we learn to accept that having a silence in a conversation, that stumbling over words or mispronouncing words are perfectly normal human experiences, then we are more equipped to relate to our fears of social performance in a more effective way. Over the years, I have worked with many children, teens, and adults who are very concerned about their social performance. A lot of them are hoping for the day when they stop feeling anxious so they can do things that are important to them. In some way, it's like they are waiting to have a social conversation that is anxiety-free. The challenge is that if you are hoping to approach social situations with zero anxiety, we may have to wait that for a long, long, long time. Because one of the things that we know about anxiety is that our anxious thoughts, our anxious feelings come with us wherever we go. Today, I interview Julian McNally, an ACT therapist from Australia. In this conversation with Julian, we discuss acceptance and commitment skills for anxiety related to social situations. You will hear us talking about our personal values how to practice commitment, how to manage negativity biases in social situations, 
how to deal with comparison thoughts, what is context sensitivity, and how you can stop playing it safe so quickly when dealing with social anxiety or when struggling with fears about your social performance. I really hope you find this episode helpful and make sure to go to the website www.thisisdrz.com so you can take a look at the show notes of it. I wish you a great day and see you next week. Bye-bye. So perhaps if it's okay, I can ask you about one of those times in which you were playing safe in your life. Was there any time when you Mm. find yourself either stuck on your head or doing things to make sure you don't experience discomfort? Yeah, you know, um, it's something I've I've thought about since you invited me to to be on the podcast, Patricia. By the way, here's something for you and I here and now. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of declaring this as a commitment. So we're we're doing this as one of a series of your podcasts. So my commitment is I would like to make this the most interesting, the most informative, basically the best interview you've had in the series. Lovely. <laughs> I welcome that. I welcome that. And, and I, I'm making that commitment and I'm inviting you to make that commitment too because it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I was talking before about uh, – outcome measures and, and monitoring progress with clients. And I always thought when I went into psychology, well, why would you not want to improve every possible way that you could? You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. The better you are as a clinician, the, the more you can help people. And, and that's also because I um, came from, uh, or well, I wouldn't say I came from, but I had a background of working in a whole range of different jobs before I came into psychology. Uh, one of them was sales. And the thing in sales is it's like if you're not producing, you're not performing. So it, it doesn't matter, you know, how many prospects you saw or whatever. If you're not converting those conversations into sales, um, you're just not performing well enough. And, you know, at, at the lower end, you lose your job. At the top end, you get rewarded really well. Um, and I kind of felt like, well, I think definitely in this field of psychology, I've got that duty to clients to do the best I possibly can. So, so that's why I'm making that commitment to you. I want to make this <laughs> the most interesting, uh, fascinating version of your podcast it can be. <laughs> you know, Julian, I just have to say that I do welcome that. And I want to also join you in that commitment to do my best to make this a juicy and helpful conversation for people listening to us. So thank you for putting that on the table. I love it. I love it. So, um, yeah, times when I played it safe. Okay. This um, probably saw me gulp then. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's, it's always like, oh, can I not face that? Can I just kind of hide away from that one? <laughs> oh, we all do that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, so, oh, look, the the, the more recent ones would be things like, so I have a problem with procrastination, you know, like like many people. And sometimes when I look at, okay, why are you procrastinating? It's It's mm-hmm. like, 
uh, you're afraid you'll fail. You're afraid that um, these would be the main ones. You're afraid that yeah. You're afraid that you uh, won't do a good job. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's another one in there. Yeah, you're afraid of being embarrassed, but that's not as big a one as it used to be. Oh, uh, you're afraid it'll be hard work. Mm-hmm. So, so like uh, when my bookkeeper says, you know, we need to reconcile these receipts or whatever, I tend to suddenly get interested in cleaning the office or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, writing these notes. I've been avoiding writing all day. <laughs> and, and it's it's kind of like, yeah, because I know there's a lot of hard work involved in that. And, and of course, you know, it seems like such a way you're afraid of looking at some receipts. That's like the easiest thing in the world for some people. But for me, it feels like, oh, that's a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was something else I was going to bring up, though, about earlier in life. Can I ask a little yeah, bit sure. of a question? Yeah, yeah. So if I were next to you and the bookkeeper says, we have to do this stuff with the receipts. And then suddenly yeah. your mind says, I have to clean the office right now. I have to do yeah. my notes. What happens under your skin? What's experience under your skin? The moves in a different path. Yeah, that's, I find that a hard question to answer, although I can feel a little bit of it now. It's like there's this sort of rising tension, you know, like from around my solar plexus coming up into my chest. Mm-hmm. And... I know that'll go away if I clean the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's, that's the tricky part of these planet safe moves or safety behaviors. They work right away, right? And that where discomfort goes away. Well, but it doesn't, does it? Because, like that—that's the thing. It's like I, I don't love cleaning the office. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's like uh, people say about. Writing a book, everyone wants to have a book written. No, nobody wants to actually sit down and write. And you know, everybody wants a clean office. Nobody wants to actually clean the office. You know, like I, I actually enjoy washing the dishes. Um, yeah. but, um, <laughs> no, I think. <laughs> but, it, but it's like, yeah, you're doing this thing that you don't enjoy in order to avoid doing this other thing that you enjoy even less. So you're not enjoying yourself now. You're just not. Enjoy yourself as little as you would be if you were doing the thing that you don't enjoy. That's true. That is true. It's really like we're that in extra discomfort and extra pain into our life. Yeah, it feels like that. And then, of course, after, you know, even after you've um, cleaned the office, it's like you don't really get to savor that, oh, wow, what a beautiful ordered office this is. Because now you've got to find some other avoidance activity and, you know, you do that for a couple more days, and then the bookkeeper says, "Julian, where are those receipts that you were supposed to get to me?" You know, and it's like, "Oh no, if I delay her any longer, then I'll end up getting a fine from the tax department." You know, so it's 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 sure not satisfying. Yeah, yeah, Julian, thank you for sharing that because I think you are describing how one avoidant behavior leads to another one and leads to another one. And even though they may work in the short term, then we have this pattern that it's been developed, a pattern that's yeah. developed. No, that, that's a really great point, Patricia, because if, if I think about many of the clients I've seen, and I'm sure it's the same for you, 
the thing that they come in or the thing that's going on that they come in with today, it didn't just happen yesterday. It's like there's, there's been that pattern that you're describing of, you know, and so what's the big deal about avoiding that? And you dig a bit deeper and you find you find something in there and, and maybe it goes back to childhood, but maybe it just goes back, you know, maybe not so far like adolescence or something happened in a job like three or four jobs ago and now, you know, they're, they're not taking any risks. Like I'm never going to go in management again because at this time I had a really difficult employee to work with and, you know, I got shown up in front of everybody and, um, yeah, and just thinking of some of the experiences my clients have been through. That's true. It's very interesting when we look at how these patterns of avoidance get developed right? And there are so many mm. sources. There are so many sources. Now, if I can ask a little bit more, we both are ACT practitioners. We both love mm. acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training. How do you see the application of ACT for procrastination or when there is this urge to postpone events or to postpone activities because we're afraid of making mistakes? or what afraid of being a failure, or what afraid of the hard work that comes if we take that task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so look, I, um, I like telling stories in therapy. A lot. Because <laughs> I think people, people learn from stories. So I'm going to tell a, a story on our mutual friend, Russ Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Russ is a published, successful author. Yes. Um, I met him back in 2004, somehow, you know, like, like I, the year before bought the act book, read it and went, wow, this is, this is kind of what I've been trying to practice, but, uh, oh, it's got values out of him. And that's, that's the thing I was looking for. So I'll just, I'll just say a little bit about how that came into being. Like I, I said before, my, um, my training was in counseling psychology. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, humanistic Rogerian psychology i then got interested in solution oriented psychology because it looked to me like oh fix people in one session or six sessions or or something really quick and i thought quicker is better right and (laughs) i made a bit of a a a fault of rushing people out the door and then people would come back and i'd go i thought i fixed you (laughs) why why are you back (laughs) why are you back (laughs) <laughs> so so I've I've moderated that over the years and kind of accept that, you know, for some people, you're you're like the dentist, you need to come back every six months. For some clients, it's like they only need you for that brief episode. And for other people, it's like it's a you know, I have people that have been with me twelve years or whatever. It's like a virtually a lifelong relationship. Yeah. And they've improved from where they were when I first saw them. But there's still you know, they, there are still challenges that show up. And so I sort of say in that way, it's like seeing your physiotherapist or, or your osteopath, you, you kind of, yeah, you get tweaks and injuries and you just need an adjustment every now and again. So anyway, um, so, back, so back to ACT. Oh, by the way, this is how I tell stories. I go all over the place, but I, I use them. <laughs> <laughs> I am smiling. As I listen to you, because I am a storyteller myself, and okay. I like background, right? I just like to get the background because that's the context to the story, right? And yeah, yeah. My friends sometimes used to joke with me, and they say, Patricia, where did you get coffee? And I will say, when? 
I woke up this morning, I looked at the sky, <laughs> and then I felt this. And then my friend said to say, Patricia, what did you get coffee? Okay, fine, Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so please, yeah. I welcome to the stories and I welcome the context and the background. It's what gives okay. you the story. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we kind of need to sort of feel like we're there in the story. So anyway, Russ um, uh, started this this. Uh, sort of peer supervision group in, in Melbourne, basically by emailing people and saying, hey, it would be good if we had a group where we got to talk about cases or, or practice techniques or whatever. And, uh, yeah, Katie Wyman, who I mentioned, was was one of the first people at that as well. Um, anyway, uh, so, so I knew him from 2004, and then uh, we went to the first, um, oh, no, maybe he'd already written it by then. But he, but he was writing a book, uh, which ended up becoming The Happiness Trap. Okay. And he, he was concerned because somebody else's um, sort of book for the, the general public on ACT was coming out at the same time, someone with a lot more, um, you know, influence and, and reputation than him. And he said, and, and he, he'd already sent me a chapter to proofread and whatever. Um, you know, just asking comments. And um, he said, oh, I, I kind of feel like what's the point now? And um, he, he said something about uh, it getting published. And um, I said, oh, well, have you written a book before? You know, like I was encouraging him because I could, I could see he had a different style of writing and I thought, well, the more of these kind of books we have out, the better. <laughs> Boy, mm-hmm. have we got them now. Um, but... Uh, he, he said, "Yeah, I, I um, tried to tried to get a book published a, a few years ago. Oh, okay, so a, a book." And he said, "Oh no, I've actually written um, six or seven. And I didn't say this to him at the time. I've told him since, but I thought, "Oh my God, you've written seven books, and none of them have get gotten published. The universe is trying to tell you something." <laughs> Thankfully, thankfully, I kept my mouth shut <laughs> and instead said the encouraging thing because I was thinking from my frame, which is like if I'm not getting a yes after three or four goes, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give up. It's too hard, which is why I, probably I haven't published a book. <laughs> but but, but the, other, the other story, and this is another book, this is, so this is about Three or four years later, we, we have a world-famous comedy festival in Melbourne every April. Wow. March, April. And, um, you know, Russ had actually, you know, when he was working as a GP, he had um, done a stand-up comedy show. Now, I didn't know that the reason he did that was to challenge his own anxiety. Mm. Anyway, he wrote his book. It's, it's a fictional book. I can't remember the name, but I bought it, read it, and went to the launch. So, you know, he's having a launch during the comedy festival. And, um, you know, so, of course, 60% of the crowd were his friends, you know, like I saw other psychologists I knew there and and other friends of Russ and, and so on. And, you know, the few people who went, oh, this is a comedy festival and just probably wandered in um, or thought, oh, it's interesting, a doctor's written a, a com-. you know, it was a comedic novel and, and it was quite funny. Um, 
wish I could remember the name of it. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. Anyway, um, so he, he said, look, I did actually uh, do a little bit of work as a stand-up comedian, so I'll, I'll give you a taste of that. And you've probably seen Russ at the Follies at ACBS things. Yes. He is very funny. He loves you. He sounds like a natural comedian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and look, uh, you know, something about me, like uh, much earlier uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an actor and I actually got into uh, Australia's top acting school and and there's a not playing it safe story in that. I'll tell if we get time. But um, one of the things that happened through that you know, through that experience of, of acting training and, and um, well, I didn't, I won't even say I worked as an actor. I got one, I work as an actor before I left and went into psychology, but um, was, I, I learned to overcome stage fright. Mm-hmm. And when I say overcome, I mean, you can put me no script in front of a group of a thousand people, say, talk about this. And yeah, I'll feel nerves and butterflies in my stomach and the mm-hmm. more time I have to prepare, the more that will be. Mm-hmm. But like I can do that. I'm I'm not afraid of falling flat on my face. And again, if we have time, I'll talk about there's an exercise exercise we did in acting school that oh, wow. you know, kind of killed that pretty much for good. But anyway, Russ tells his thing, the audience is in stitches. And then afterwards he says, um, you know, something about I'm going to be signing books. And I was in the second or third row. So I was like about the sixth person behind with my copy of the book for Russ to sign. Of course, I wanted to congratulate him because it had all gone so well. And I shook his hand and his hand was wet with sweat. Yes, yeah. And I went away and was shocked and thought, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. If I felt that nervous doing this, and this is in front of, you know, like an audience that is basically with you. You know, there, there's no disapproval or judgment or you know, a tiny bit because we're all judging all the time. Yeah, we are. It's like this is about as safe as it gets. And it's like, wow, this guy fights the, well, I don't know if he fights this fear. I, I think being Russ, he embraces the fear and goes, yep, there you are, my friend. You're coming on the stage with me. That's right. And, and it's there in, in his body and it's like, wow. I find that inspiring. I'm actually getting goosebumps just talking about it. Yeah. You know, I started a podcast in the midst of COVID and I didn't know how it was going to be or I didn't know anything, but I interviewed Russ. This is 2021. We are friends and we are colleagues. Hmm. We have a close relationship. And one of the things he say, and this is in the podcast, he asked me, can you see my hands? Can you look? Oh, my I listened to that. Episode, yes. It was one of yeah. the first interviews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people should, should go back and listen to that one. It's yeah, great. But he's talking about what you are describing. Here is a guy extremely successful, a great teacher. He does put himself out there. But when he asked me, can you look at my hands? I said, they look a little bit red. And he said, do you see how shiny they look? And then he brings them closer to the camera. And then I can see, and he say, even a close relationship, this is wow, my yeah. friend, but you can see my fear kicking in. And that's to share that, yeah, it's incredible that when we do what we care about, our fears come with us. They're just Oh, yeah. 
Oh, Patricia, that that is so right that our our fears come with us when we do what we care about. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's helping me see one one of the things I was um gonna gonna share with you is you know an area where I play it safe sometimes is uh, you know like like the prospect of expanding my practice. Okay. So there's a part of me that would like to expand the practice, but then my mind jumps in with. Um, you know, like, like, a, uh, so I have this, you know, a lot of people would say it's a successful practice, you know, there's yeah. nine practitioners and, you know. Really well um, established. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got a good reputation and so on. And I think people enjoy working there, you know, which to me is the big thing. I wanted to form mm-hmm. a community of ACT practitioners that would enjoy each other's company and um, we do social events and, and I I would be biased, but I, th- I think people really do enjoy themselves and each other's company. But like this idea of expanding, yeah, I'd like mm-hmm. to get to say some size like I don't know, 20, 30, maybe 50 or 60 practitioners, not much bigger than that because then it's like seriously, are there that many good practitioners out there? Well, I'd like to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that has me stop, you know, the thoughts that have me stop are things, well, like that, like, oh, maybe there aren't any good practitioners, <laughs> something like 10,000 psychologists in <laughs> Um Maybe oh, I'll end up with somebody really difficult. They'll be hard to work with, you know, mm-hmm. and then I won't enjoy coming. Do you see what I mean? I'm, I'm kind of setting up a... a, a an imagery of it failing before I even start. Yeah. And, and in the same way, I, sorry, go on. No, it's quickly the mind will anticipate some potential negative outcome, right? Yeah. Just quickly go there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, you know, I noticed, uh, is it, hang on, I've got to get the, the name right. Amy. I've forgotten the middle surname Barrett, the neuroscientist who, who talks about the brain being a prediction machine. Oh, there is Lisa Feldman also. She oh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Right. That's right. That's I was one. getting mixed up with a Supreme Court judge. Two thousand. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, sorry, is it Lisa Feldman Lisa Barrett? Fel- yes, it's Lisa Feldman yeah. Barrett. And one of her first books was what emotions are made of when she talks about our minds being these predicting machines and we only let when we're yeah. get these proofs. Yeah, well, I, I hadn't read, well, I still, I think I've read her, her very small book, the, the Seven Something or Others. Ah, I can't I remember read. the name. Um, but I, I was kind of reading it going, that's what I've been telling my clients for years because, like, Back in 2010, when I started working with, you know, the Matrix, that, mm-hmm. that diagram that Benji Schoendorf and, um, oh, the guy who, who works at the, um, or worked at the Veterans Affairs at uh, uh, Mark Webster, maybe? Mark Webster and, and yeah, the other guy. Uh, Kevin Polk? annoying me. Kevin Polk, that's right. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. hard so, to remember all those names. <laughs> There are so many names in ACT, and it's it's 5.30 in the morning here. And <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, no that's all right. <laughs> but um, 
one of the things I included in that was talking about your mind and your mind does three things. It compares, it predicts, it evaluates. This is kind of like a, uh, a loop that it goes through to solve problems. So it compares, you know, something like, uh, I'm thirsty and I don't want to be thirsty. How do I close that gap? And so then your brain sets to work making predictions about, well, I could go down the hill and find a, a river maybe, or I could go to the tap and get a glass of water or whatever. And then you carry out, you execute that action, and then you evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Okay, is the gap closed? How do I feel? And, and that's when you know you've succeeded. And if you haven't succeeded, you go back through the loop again. That's right. So, so yeah, this idea of um, prediction. Now, I'm trying to remember how we got onto that. Oh, that's right. Yes. The, so there's my brain predicting all the things that could go wrong with me taking problem. a risk. Yeah. yeah. How do you handle that? You're considering expanding your practice. You have already a very beautiful, well-established practice, and there is a sense of community that you have built up. And then you're thinking, should I expand? And then the mind tells you, well, what if I hire someone that maybe is not as competent? Or what if it's difficult to manage this large number of psychologists? Yeah. Okay. Well, again, another another story about me and my development as a person. Mm. When I was a kid, um, I was very bright. But I've become less intelligent. Is this not even mine? <laughs> thank, thank you for that reminder, Patricia. <laughs> no, so what what happened was my uh, my older brother, who's eighteen months older, went off to school. Mm-hmm. So I was I was like four or whatever, and he came home and he brought back a book and he showed it to me. And he showed me the words and whatever. And then I took that book and then I picked up another book and then I picked up another book and I was reading books and my parents came in one day and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm reading. <laughs> How can you read? You don't go to school. Anyway, I was, I was really bright. And oh, wow. the thing is, from that time, my parents noticed it and kind of celebrated it, which is, which is lovely, great. But the thing I got from it was, and, and especially... Here's the thing that would happen. I would read about something, you know, something to, like this is by the time I'm six, seven, uh, something to do with science, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like why is the sky blue or how are clouds made? And then I'd uh, tell them about it, especially in front of other people, and they would say, he is amazing, he's so smart. And how did he? how does he know that? You know, that was always the question, like how does he know that? Who taught him? Mm-hmm. And it was like nobody taught me. I taught myself. <laughs> now, now this becomes a fault later in life. Is I'm walking through um, Bunnings, which is like a big hardware chain we have here, with my with my son. He was then about eighteen, nineteen, and we're looking for something we need, like a tool or a screw or whatever. And I'm walking up and down the aisles and he says, oh, there's, there's one of the staff. Why don't you ask them? And I said, oh, they never know. And, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that, that they're, they're often casual or they specialize in one area they don't know. But it's that thing of me as a kid, I have to find out on my own. Mm-hmm. So what's the thing I don't do as an adult? I don't ask for help. 
And in fact, I'm almost insulted when people offer to help. It's like, no, I can do it, you know, <laughs> sort of pride myself on self-sufficiency. So now the interesting thing about this practice thing is I've just actually this week taken on a business coach who has successfully grown her own practice, a couple of practices, and teaches other people how to do it. It's sort of like that, you know, to a lot of people, that would not be going out of playing it safe. But to me, that's like, oh, she's going to find out and now my success will be partly down to her and, you know, it's it's always like this small-minded, it's got to be mine, mine, I've got to be the smartest person kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. terrible. So, so I wish I could say that, oh, I <laughs> do this act practice of being, you know, mindful and accepting the feelings as they show up and then stepping into the so goal that I set for myself. But no, I appreciate the realness of what you're sharing. I think there is a lot to say. Um, one of the things that was coming to my mind is how Often, if not always, our minds try to use the same way of thinking across all mm. contexts, right? We were talking about, oh, boy. about how if something has worked for us as kids, as teenagers, or particular skill, if you want, we try to do the same across settings. And it's hard to realize that new settings require sometimes new skills or different approaches or different mindset. So I think there's a little bit that... for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!